You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, Science and Technology Editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to episode 16 of Meeting Pod, where we're talking meat quality, R&D, and product development strategy with Dr. Katie Simpson Beecham, Vice President of Food Science Quality and Safety at ButcherBox, the subscription-based meat delivery company that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, and wild-caught seafood across the country. Katie joined the team last November and is responsible for managing ButcherBox's food safety programs and for monitoring compliance of those food safety criteria within the company's network of suppliers, while also supporting product development on the procurement side. Our Meeting Place community will know Katie from her work at Colorado Premium Foods in Greeley, where for 10 years she led the company's technical department. As Vice President of Technical Services and Principal Scientist for the globally distributed ready-to-cook and ready-to-eat meat and poultry processor, Katie directed all food safety, regulatory, quality, and R&D initiatives for the company's five production facilities and one distribution center. In addition to many notable accomplishments at Colorado Premium, Katie developed an R&D program that successfully launched 17 fresh and frozen marinated retail products and 11 portion control intact, non-intact, marinated, and ground food service products. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Katie. I'm delighted to have you as a guest on the podcast today. Thank you, Julie. I'm excited for our conversation. Great. Well, you know, Katie, your expertise is really wide ranging from technical knowledge of food safety and food processing, product quality, to a business savvy on supply chain management and business performance. So today I would like to tap into your R&D acumen and focus on meat quality and product development. So let's start our conversation with a big picture question. What do you think are the biggest trends in R&D and product development in the meat industry today? And what's exciting about them? Is clean label still king or are we still talking really antimicrobial ingredients being on the radar or has the COVID-19 pandemic shifted trends in some way? I think that's an excellent question. And I think the most noteworthy trends are around flavor, convenience and snacks. From a flavor perspective, flavors like lemon pepper and teriyaki are never going away. They're comfortable, they're not polarizing, and they're universal and well done. But in general, consumers are more excited to take a trip with flavors. More and more as we move into this pandemic, I think that people are even more excited about flavors and taking opportunities that they normally wouldn't have. And the nice part about pre-formulated flavor profiles that are exciting, novel, and not commonly encountered is, is that a consumer can try that flavor profile out and they don't have to buy all of the ingredients associated with making that product. That can be very expensive. It can be a little bit daunting and cumbersome. So this gives them an opportunity to try something new, but in a way that if they don't like it, it's not a huge loss. From a convenience perspective, convenience can be about the portion size, how prepared the product is, the packaging. 
So in general, consumers, I think, are increasingly looking for the types of products that are more and more prepared that they can throw into a skillet. They can create something that's very good, but the meal prep time is pretty short. I'm personally one of those consumers as well. And so I think that convenience is important, but then also the type of packaging associated with it. So is it single portions? Is it multi-portions in a larger bag so that I can use it, but I also am not wasting. I haven't had to prepare it many days ahead, but I can eat it multiple times. So that type of convenience, I think, is an increasing trend that we'll see more and more of. And then snacks. So snacks even several years prior, have become more and more of a food staple. People are replacing their lunch and their breakfast with snacks. Meat is becoming increasingly recognized as that perfect protein. And so how do you incorporate that type of snack in your daily life? Either I'm driving to work or now I'm not driving to work. And so I'm incorporating my snack into my breakfast, I'm incorporating it to lunch and those types of things. And so meat finding their way into snack packs or exclusively meat-based snacks is a trend that is not going away, is gaining additional steam. And I think that will be here to stay for a while. And then when it comes to clean label, clean label is still king. I think that as we see, so it's fun when we say, I want to work with unique flavor profiles and a clean label that gets to be quite interesting, but also exciting. And so in general, consumers are more attuned to what they're putting in their body. They want to know what it is and recognize it, but they also want to know what it does. And so as consumers are becoming more educated, they want to move past just an ingredient deck that is available in their kitchen pantry, but then to say, am I making a good choice? Can I validate my decision with understanding what is in my product and the healthy label? And does that have an additional impact outside of a flavor profile or something in my product? Does it have a health attribute associated with that product or that profile as well? And so I do believe that clean label is important for two reasons. One is that it's very transparent, but two is that the product is almost being co-developed by consumers as there's, you know, social media becomes more and more of an opportunity to glean insights from consumers about what they want and don't want and do understand and don't understand about their products. And then from an ingredient space in the antimicrobial realm, antimicrobials in general, from a clean label perspective, they're still absolutely necessity. And some of them can be clean and some of them are not considered clean, right? But those from a suppression of pathogens, those are not going to go away. And then also from a shelf life extension perspective, those are incredibly important. How do meat processors really identify what's most applicable to their operation in terms of can they produce clean label meat products? It's a great question. So from a processing perspective or a manufacturer perspective, a lot of that is driven by the ultimate client and the supply chain and distribution that that client can be holden to, right? And so if you're developing a product that is distributed nationwide in a fresh format, you have some limitations and requirements, but then also who is the end user of that product. And so as a manufacturer, you may be producing products that are starkly different from one another because of the different clients that you're producing those products for. 
And so as a manufacturer becomes more and more savvy in understanding what type of clean label ingredients work really well and which ones have different opportunities, which ones are more sensitive to slight or mild temperature abuse, or they interact with different um, other ingredients in an antagonistic way, then they may be coming more and more of their kind of toolbox of developing a product. And I would expect from a manufacturer to have a pretty diverse type of product line that they produce within their facility or facilities, really dependent on who that ultimate user will be. For example, you know, butcher boxes you can pervade in a frozen format. And so the necessity of shelf life extension agents or those types of things isn't as critical for these types of programs. But then when you have your fresh products, you have ready to eat products, those will limit you to what can be used or allow maybe a pretty diverse set of options. And then it really is what will that be perceived as from a consumer perspective. What would you say is an effective strategy when building a strong R&D program in a meat business? Are there any watchouts or are there any barriers to successfully transitioning products from R&D to production? Sure. Two things stand out to me, and that's mostly been because of experience. I would say the two biggest opportunities for either failure or success are, one, the design of the product and understanding by the manufacturer and then the customer, right, in what that product is. And then two would be what is the expected or intended use of that product by the ultimate consumer, if that's food service, retail, whatnot. And so going back to the first opportunity is when you create a product from an R&D perspective, it's typically done in a pilot facility or on the bench top. And not all of your commercial either processes or pieces of equipment are able to be utilized to develop an R&D product. And so it's very important to understand what your R&D process mimics and also what it lacks when you would translate that into a commercial product or a commercial processed product. As you're developing something, you would have a lighter flavor profile in a pilot product than you would in the commercial product typically because of the type of mechanical conditioning and working in that flavor into your product that you would see in a commercial setting versus in an R&D type of setting. And you may see a different appearance. You may see a different color profile of the product. And so it's really important to understand how that product performs R&D and how it performs in the commercial setting. As a customer, it's important to reflect on the value of perhaps creating a large-scale sample run for that first type of product initiation to say, did this product ultimately result in the product that I wanted it to be versus I really loved the R&D product and now I have a heavy overdone flavor profile. My product is kind of beat up, doesn't from an appearance perspective embody what I originally expected it to. And so manufacturer and customer have to have realistic expectations of what the development process and then ultimately the commercial product will result in. 
Now you're at ButcherBox. So I've been tapping into your processing uh, knowledge there, but I'm going to shift a little bit to sourcing. Sourcing really has everything to do with meat quality. And of course, you're coming from uh, meat processing and consulting. You know, you're coming out of that field into ButcherBox. And it's probably given you a pretty unique perspective on this aspect. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sourcing to ensure protein quality standards, especially as it relates to those two points in the supply chain. Sure. So in general, sourcing for a processed meat product and not processed as in ready to eat, but processed as in not boxed products from a subprimal perspective is going to be largely centered around manufacturers, processing capabilities, their distribution network pricing considerations and their capacity to produce for your system requirements. And so those factors are most important, likely, in understanding who your appropriate manufacturer can be. And then when it comes to the products, you know, raw material is critical, right? So the raw material sourcing, do I have a lot of inconsistencies in my raw material? Do I have color inconsistencies, flavor attributes that are important to understand? Do I have logistical opportunities between sites that would create disadvantages in trying to manufacture the cycle that's necessary? So all of those things are critical in sourcing. And then as we look at the butcher box model, it's increasingly important to understand the actual live animal source and then as it moves through the supply chain for identity preservation. And so because of the number of special claims associated with the products destined for ButcherBox members in general, it's very difficult to become a supplier into ButcherBox. And so, whereas in some types of business models, it really is critical from a specification perspective to say what type of product specifications have been created, right? How are we going to audit those product specifications on a continued basis to make sure that you maintain that initial type of product that was specified in the purchase agreement? But then as we move into creating this supplier network that we have from a butcher box perspective, it's so difficult to become a supplier because of the number of special claims and that if there is a dissatisfaction or an impasse from a product perspective, it's not simple to then find an alternative consumer or outlet for that product. And so what we have not necessarily encountered are those breaches of quality or the product expectation. and. I think that there's been a lot of value in that we talk to our suppliers and I would encourage anyone from a supply perspective to create a very transparent and continually fostered relationship with their suppliers and then also their customers because transparency typically creates unity and you can get in front of little problems quickly. But we're talking with our suppliers on a weekly basis, typically, if not multiple times a week. And there's been a lot of value in that process as well. There's not any surprises in regards to what's coming down the pike from a supply perspective because of the frequency of communication, which I think for any supply type of relationship is critical. Yeah, you know, I think transparency has finally become more than a buzzword in the food industry in general. And I'm really seeing it in the meat industry. So ButcherBox is actually a really good example of that applied transparency. I agree with that. And I think that transparency comes in two forms, transparency and 
is it animal husbandry? Is it in feed programs? Is it in who is a part of the upstream supply chain versus saying it's not necessarily critical to know? I think it's important to know. But then also transparency from a specified purchase agreement to say this is the product that I intend to purchase and this is the product that I intend to sell you. And then also transparency and saying how does the price relate to the purchase agreements? Because I think that oftentimes groups get into relationships where the product that they want and the price that they've agreed upon, you don't draw lines at one end of the paper and meet in the middle. And there's always that constant back and forth. And I think that the transparency of a successful front-end agreement creates long-term and sustained partnership between two groups that neither group feel like they're being kind of underserved in regards to the agreement that they've entered together. Let's shift a little bit to uh, science. Do you think, Katie, that there's been any recent scientific or tech developments of interest to meat processors when it comes to improving quality attributes, everything from tenderness to extending shelf life, or ensuring product quality and food safety through a process control or intervention? Absolutely. I think that the most interesting evolution that I continue to see is that how the influence on one characteristic of a product will impact other characteristics. So if I'm changing tenderness, what is my impact on color or flavor? And as you continue to see, you know, additional research that's published, it becomes less and less of siloed focus on one characteristic. And it talks more and more about this attribute was addressed, but then how did it impact other product attributes? And then also from a science perspective, there's an increasing focus on the natural ingredient space. I think that I've been most impressed by the positive evolution in the natural ingredient space because in early work for me, the natural ingredient opportunity and you know, options that were available were effective when it came to shelf life extension and pathogen control. The challenge was is that using them at effective levels was typically associated with a very aggressive flavor profile that had to be then masked with additional heavy flavors and made the product largely unpalatable. And so I've been really impressed in general with the evolution of those natural ingredients where, you know, they're increasingly available that you can use them in a way that's meaningful, but then also you can still have a fairly clean product flavor profile that isn't muddied up with something unexpected that's related to the natural ingredient. Well, again, as a meat scientist, I'm sure you get a lot of questions from family and friends about the best cuts of meat or how to choose meat and how to prepare it and the like. I know I ask all my meat scientist friends these questions all the time. So I'd love to know what kind of questions do you most often get and what are your answers and are any of them kind of surprising? Well, first of all, no one is asking me how to cook 
their products because it's widely known that I am not a very good cook. So in general, the people skip me in their phone registry when it comes to those questions. But in general, the most interesting and extensive conversations I've ever had have been on an airplane when you're kind of getting yourself situated and you have the customary, are you headed home, going to or from, you know? And then also people say, what do you do? And what do you do? And when I say I'm a meat scientist, it seems as though in general, people have a pent up list of burning questions that they've accumulated and finally have someone to ask them to. And I've had wide ranging questions and very long conversations with folks on airplanes. So that's always given me kind of a chuckle when people say I had no idea there was such a thing as a meat scientist. And then in general, my circle, whether it's my work circle or my family circle, you know, they're a little bit more versed from a meat perspective. So I, I think that the most common questions that I see are get a lot of pictures. Is this normal? <laughs> what is this in those types of things? And I do a lot of very small mini education sessions on oxidation and meat color and how packaging influences that. And is this still good? And I think that probably the vast majority of questions from family and friends occur on Christmas morning or Thanksgiving morning as they're preparing turkeys or prime ribs and they don't want to make their mother-in-law sick. So they do have those questions and I always get a chuckle and I wouldn't want to make my mother-in-law sick either. Oh, I love it. Well, what's the weirdest question you think you've ever been asked or where? <laughs> That's difficult to say. I would say that the weirdest question I've ever been asked was they asked me where meat actually comes from. And it was a highly educated woman on a plane that was very alarmed to understand that meat actually was muscle. She felt as though there was probably a different anatomical region that meat was coming from, from an animal. And she left pretty shocked. <laughs> What it did leave me with is kind of a stark realization that in general, from a meat industry perspective and a meat science perspective, that there's still a lot of opportunity to educate and bring people in and help people understand increasingly more about meat and meat programs and meat opportunities and meat nutrition and those types of things. Right. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, I, like you, Katie, am not the cook in my family either, but I'm really happy that you shared your expertise with our Meeting Pod listeners today, and I will be sharing it with my husband, who is the cook in our family. <laughs> we don't have one of those, so <laughs> neither one of us. <laughs> and listeners, be sure to visit ButcherBox online at ButcherBox.com, where you can find out more about how the company sources and delivers high-quality meat, poultry, and seafood to a growing subscriber base or to become a subscriber yourself. Also, check out meetingplace.com where you can find a terrific thought leader profile on Michael Billings, head of procurement at ButcherBox in our November 2019 issue of Meeting Place magazine. Or read CEO Michael Selgero's insights into the meat supply chain e-commerce boom in our June 2020 issues piece, Whisper to a Screen. Thanks again, Katie. I think I'm on the fast track to becoming a ButcherBox subscriber after today's chat. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. 
Be sure to subscribe to MeetingPod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media, or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net.